0: Welcome to the podcast of the fabulous Las Vegas Rotary Club. My name is Jacqueline Thornhill and I am honored to serve as the 97th president. Our club focuses on youth, children's literacy, and we support our active duty military and veterans. We meet on Thursdays at Lowry's at noon. For more information, please visit lasvegasrotary.com or follow us on Facebook at Las Vegas Rotary Club Founded 1923 where you can watch a live stream of our weekly meetings. Please enjoy this week's speaker. Okay, everyone. Today's speaker. Hello, everyone. Today's speaker, Sarah Robinson, is from Shelterbox. Some of you may remember that they came and did a presentation for us a few years ago. They are a disaster relief organization. When I was at the Hamburg convention this past June, I was wandering around the House of Friendship and looking for potential speakers for our club, and I came across their massive booth display. And I went in there and I looked around and I spoke with the people in there, and I was introduced to Sarah as the U.S. representative. And I wanted, of course, to make sure that disaster relief was not only worldwide, but of course domestically, and they assured us that it was. And just to give you a little history, it's in my message that I wrote, the history of the partnership between Rotary International and Shelterbox goes back to April of 2000 and was started as a project with the Cornwall England when they adopted Shelterbox, everyone please, as its Millennium Project. Little did they know that it would become the largest club project in the world. And they respond to disasters across the globe, providing emergency response, and they usually respond between 24 to 36 hours to disasters. So everyone, please give a round of applause for Sarah Robinson.
1: Thank you, President Jackie and fellow Rotarians. Uh, I'm really thrilled to be here today and with such a vibrant club. I belong to the Rotary Club in Albuquerque, so the second best one in the world. So (laughs) I wanted to share with you today with the theme being Rotary Connects the World, I think this is a perfect time to be here in this year. And I wanted to share with you the ways that through ShelterBox Rotarians are able to connect with victims of disaster all around the globe. When we long for home, are we asking for a roof and brick walls, or do we just need the people we love and the comfort of a little shade?
0: Yes, home is a location, but it can be anywhere that's dotted with the marks of family and friends. A place made of simple pieces, like a spot to play, a light to read by, a soft landing zone that together give us hope for the days to come.
1: So that's really what we do. We create homes for families who have been displaced by disaster. And so uh, while we initially started off just responding to natural disasters, we also work in conflict situations as well. Uh, We know that today there are 85 million people who are displaced globally. So, 20 million of those are due to natural disaster, and the other 65 million have been forced to flee because of conflict. And sadly, these numbers are only expected to rise. By the year 2050, it's estimated that 200 million people will be displaced. And so, uh, we really feel an urgency to be able to do more and to reach more families and to create that world where no family is without shelter after disaster. And so every day, whether it's landslides or hurricanes or tsunamis that are forcing families to flee or in conflict situations, uh, we're there to help and to provide people with that temporary solution and the emergency shelter that they need so they can have a place to recover and to come together and to start to rebuild. And really none of this work would be possible without Rotary. So ShelterBox, as Jackie alluded to, was actually started by a Rotary Club Uh, For those of you that have been around this long, back in 2000, all Rotarians were asked to do a millennium project, and so it was a larger project that would impact either the local or global community. And in this club, in a small town in England, what the members had found is that many of them were part of the military, and so being sent to disaster zones Food and medicine would often flood in after a disaster, but there was no great temporary housing solution. And so being Rotarians, they saw a problem and wanted to fix it, and so they started putting boxes together that contained everything that families would need to survive following a disaster. So a family-sized tent that's 15 feet by 15 feet It can house up to six or 10 people. Oftentimes we'll see big families with children in them. Uh, We also distribute items like water filters, mosquito nets that can save lives. Often after disaster, uh, diseases like malaria and Zika will spread. We deal with a lot of waterborne disease like cholera. And so these simple tools can really help to change lives. Uh, We also offer a solar light, which I'll share around here, but this charges in the sun and then lasts for 24 hours. And we'll provide a couple of these in every box because if there's two of these in a tent, it's enough to read by at night. Uh, Often in some of the camps where we work, sexual violence can be an issue, and so women can use these to go to the latrines at night. When we were in Malawi, they use them to check the tent for snakes, they said. So they have all different types of uses. Uh, you can use them for camping too, but they're waterproof and inflatable, but something as simple as a tool like this can be a life changer for families when there's no electricity and after disaster. There you go. We also give our items as a gift to that family and to that community. So we don't go and try to gather back the tents, but we often see our items repurposed. The boxes have been used as cradles for babies, uh, sometimes as a place to store water, as a food pantry. Here you can see one of our tents years later that's being used as a roadside stand. I've been told there's also one on the beach in Chile that you can rent as an Airbnb. So keep that in mind for your next vacation. (laughs) So those who know about shelter box may have seen the box a lot, but one of the newer pieces of aid that we have is actually called a shelter kit. And so whereas the standard box costs $1,000 to fill and to ship to the disaster zone, these are $100 and they have multiple uses. One is that uh, they contain tarps and tools that can be used to do repairs. So if a hurricane comes and rips off the roof from a family's home, uh, there are tarps and tools included that can be used as a repair kit but also there's enough material in here to create a standalone structure. And when I was mentioning the items being repurposed and reused, when we were in Malawi, they had lost their homes but also their crops during the flooding. And so the women there took our shovels and our hose, and they were able to be hired as day laborers in the neighboring country of Mozambique. And so it gave them a way to start to gather food for their family again and to get back on their feet. When we were in the Philippines, they lost their fishing nets in the typhoon, and so they took the rope we provided and took it apart into smaller strands and were able to tie new fishing nets. And so while our core purpose is shelter, we see the items being used for different economic development opportunities and things like that. But here you can see actually one of those standalone units. So we would procure bamboo or lumber locally in the country, whatever we could use as a framework. And then we provide training to the community. So I'm not sure if you can see, but there's little bottle caps that line the window there and along the center. And it's because if you nail into a bottle cap, it will keep the nail hole from tearing if there are heavy winds, so the tarp won't rip. So there are simple low cost tools like that that we provide family and tips that we can give them to help them to be able to survive. In terms of distribution, we have aid pre-positioned in 11 different locations around the globe. They tend to be in spots around the equator uh, because that's where many of these tropical storms hit but it's been very useful to us i can tell you um, after the massive hurricanes that struck the caribbean in 2017 we were on the ground rapidly as was the red cross but they didn't have any aid stockpiled nearby so they borrowed some of our shelter kits and then when their equipment came in replaced our stock and so there's a lot of collaboration and sharing that happens in the field And then in terms of how we get the items to where they need to be, it's really by any means possible. These boxes weigh between 120 and 140 pounds based on what that particular box is stocked with. But oftentimes we're dealing with failures in infrastructure, roads that have been washed out by landslides, uh, runways that have been destroyed in an earthquake. And so we really partner with the local community to get the aid to where it needs to be. And all this is possible through an incredible core of volunteers that we work with. So we have a group of 200 what we call our shelter box response team members and they're located in different countries around the world they'll make themselves available so that if a disaster happens, they'll get a call and be on a plane within 24 hours. And so they'll typically travel in just teams of two or four and then work with the local community when they land on the ground to provide train-the-trainer type activities so they can help the uh, local community leaders to understand the aid and to help us identify families who are most in need. And that's something that helps us to be able to keep our costs low by sending those small teams. Another advantage is that In in the humanitarian world, with a lot of organizations, we see a high level of burnout among their employees. And by having this fresh set of volunteers come in every three weeks, they're highly trained, but they also um, have other jobs. And so them being able to go in and to bring that fresh set of eyes and that energy is something that other groups have told us sets our work apart. We also partner with Rotary still. So we're Rotary's project partner in disaster relief. So the organization and that club's project grew so rapidly that we became a standalone charity, but we continue to be Rotary's primary partner in disaster relief. And so 90% of our deployments in those natural disaster areas, we work with rotary clubs on the ground. So this uh, partnership manifests itself in many different ways. Here you can see some Rotarians helping stock boxes. We've had um, transportation, uh, translation services through the Rotarians. I can tell you that uh, when we were in Peru, the Rotarians introduced us to the prime minister and his wife, and they were able to assign their military to help with our distributions. In the Philippines, the Rotarian we partnered with was a beer distributor. And so he knew everyone at customs. He had flatbed trucks that we could use to distribute our aid and warehouses to store it in. And so those local community connections that come from Rotary are really invaluable to us. We also have partners, so we're partners with the International Federation of the Red Cross, with Habitat for Humanity, the UN, other agencies. But this is a really important piece because we wanna make sure that families can continue on their road to recovery. And so this image is us working with Habitat for Humanity. So oftentimes they're coming in after us and replacing the tarps and the temporary housing with wood and corrugated iron so that family has a new place to live. We work with another type of partner too, and we call these our in-country distribution partners because in those places where there is conflict, like in Syria, we've been supporting the region since 2012, and we've sheltered 50,000 families there but rather than sending our volunteers into the country where it's incredibly dangerous still, we work with local partners who uh, existed there prior to the outbreak of the war, and so we're typically meeting them on the border and providing training and the equipment which they return to their country and distribute to families there. And some of the things that set our organization apart, uh, being a smaller organization, there's never enough aid to help everybody, and so we really prioritize the most vulnerable. Sometimes it's the elderly, sometimes mothers who have newborn babies, really those who couldn't survive in the elements otherwise. After Haiti, when there were the massive earthquakes in 2010, uh, we provided a third of the tented shelter at the time, there were one million people displaced. And in the early days, uh, Doctors Without Borders approached us and they were using our tents as places where amputees could recover because so many had lost their limbs when the buildings crumbled and this gave them a more sterile place to be able to recover. We also go to what we call last mile communities, so oftentimes we're reaching areas that others either can't or won't reach. So. In 2015 there were earthquakes in Nepal and many of the large age agencies like the Red Cross and the UN landed in the capital of Kathmandu and started distributing aid there which was important because the city had been destroyed but we were actually hiking our aid since it's packaged up and more nimble out into mountain communities whose roads had been washed out by landslides and so These were really um, places that were otherwise cut off from the world, and so we work to reach those spots that others either can't or won't. And we also work as gap fillers, both in that example or uh, when the conflict first started in Syria, we actually had families fleeing over the mountains and into Lebanon, And at the time, the country didn't want massive tent camps set up along the border. And so we were able to negotiate with local farmers there who let us use their land. And so we set up our tents as a place for rest and relief along uh, that farm tract. So families could have a resting place before they moved on. And so uh, this mother here actually had her baby inside one of the shelter box tents. She had crossed the mountains heavily pregnant. And so this was the first home that he knew and so often we're filling in around the edges and finding needs that aren't being met and then that's where our work comes in. We also go back to the communities and we talk to the families that we serve and we gather information. Um, Our tent has been through 25 different iterations. Uh, They don't sell it commercially on the market, it's designed specifically for us and so we take that feedback from the families and we adapt our aid accordingly. Uh, We're not just asking them things like, you know, did you like the tent? It's trying to find out if they're sleeping at night. Have their children been able to go back to school so we can make sure that that long-term recovery is actually happening? And then we'll adapt our aid based on the feedback that we receive and also based on the increase of situations that we're seeing and um, climate and so here's an example from Cameroon so we've been helping in this region for years now and families are fleeing Boko Haram in Nigeria and 50 to 100 people are entering this massive camp each day and so they've been staying inside our shelter box tents but over time with the UV exposure uh, the tents can start to deteriorate and given the very warm climate And so we needed a more semi-permanent solution the camp is filled with many women who have young children their husbands have been slain they're afraid to return home the violence is continuing and so a local building practice in Cameroon is actually to create houses from mud bricks but the way they would fire the bricks is in a wood-fired kiln and we were concerned about the surrounding area becoming deforested quickly and so we worked with the families to uh, cure these bricks in the sun instead and then we coat them with the tar-like material and it makes the bricks last longer. So today still families will come into the camp, they'll stay in our tents while we're helping them and training them to build one of these semi-permanent solutions. And so we'll train the families on how to create these mud bricks and then provide things like the framework for the home and the tarp for the roof and the iron for the door. And so as a result of all this, uh, we've been able to help 1.5 million people in over 100 countries across the world since that one little Rotary Club started its project back in 2000. And because of our work in these conflict areas, we've actually been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize last year and again this year. The one thing I'll say here is just that there is an immense global need and with changes that are happening to the climate, often it's the poorest people of the world who are affected by these different disasters. Oftentimes they're forced to live in floodplains and areas where other people don't want to build and so um, we're really helping people in some of the most desperate of situations. You can see here, these are our current deployments and often we're responding to places that never even make the news headlines but we're on the ground providing aid. Last year there was a dam that broke in Kenya and 300,000 people were displaced and we were on the ground and it just never made the news here in the United States. And so currently we're responding in Somaliland to drought, in Ethiopia to conflict that's unraveling there, uh, in the Lake Chad Basin for families fleeing Boko Haram. We're in Paraguay, we have a team on the ground right now who's providing 3,000 families with homes after flooding and then continuing to support those families in Syria and they're families like Grace's. So uh, when we had a Cyclone die hit Southern Africa earlier this year, uh, she said, I rushed back to the children and the water level was up to my neck. I lost everything. If I can get a stronger house, I will know where to start from. At least that will be safer for the children. And so these are really the families that we're striving to help and we're helping them to do exactly that, to be able to build back stronger. And so I wanted to just see it this time if anyone has any questions, comments, compliments. Yes, go ahead. You are great. No. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Oh, okay, perfect. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm done. Mm-hmm. He said I'm great if anyone didn't hear it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm an event planner locally. I work with a lot of uh, organizations when our corporate conventions want to do a, a charitable team building, like clean the world, things like that. Do you offer anything? I, I saw something in another country with your company that does team building, but I didn't know if you did anything locally or even what that would entail mm-hmm. if you needed to. Sure. Yep, we have a corporate team building program. It's called High Stakes Leadership, so we know that when our volunteers are responding, they're having to be in um, really difficult situations. They're going to a country where they've never been before, working with a strange culture. They're having to deal with all different types of either maybe personal threats to their safety or just uh, sort of community instability. And so, some of the teamwork and communication skills uh, that we train our volunteers on, we take and apply in a corporate setting, and it can look really different. Um, Some are, you know, four hours long or a day long. We've done, we did a couple weeks ago, an overnight where people slept in the tents with Airbnb. And so, yeah, I'm happy to talk to you more about that afterwards.
0: First of all, thanks for being here today, and thanks for what you're doing. Are are you recycling these tents, or is it just a one-time use for each um, disaster?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So the community gets to keep the items, and they reuse them in all different types of ways. Uh, We're responding in Somaliland right now, and when our team first landed on the ground, they had their driver stop the car, And they're like, wait, wait, we see a rotary logo over there. And it was actually fabric from one of our old tents that had been put together with other fabric and used to create a tea shop, which apparently has the best tea in Somaliland. And uh, it's a woman who started this shop and she has four employees now, but we had distributed aid to her eight years ago when there was a similar drought and she had repurposed the materials. And so, yes, uh, we give the items and then they're reused in the community in a whole variety of different ways.
0: Can you tell us how much of your funding comes from uh, Rotary International and what is your total budget?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, Our budget is about uh, 11 million dollars and rotarians and rotary clubs across the world support that work it's close to half our funding that we get from our rotary family we don't receive any dollars from the rotary international foundation even though we support you know maternal and child health and water and sanitation our project isn't sustainable because we're meant to be that temporary solution and not long term and so it's just clubs from around the world who come together with their support I'm assuming
0: some of the places you go are safe and some are not. Can you address which one, where you will go and where you will not go?
1: Sure, uh, safety is absolutely a concern. So in some of those conflict zones, we do strive to work with partners in those communities. If it's a place where, We're not comfortable sending our volunteers but we go to great lengths to protect uh, the people that we work with and so we use the same briefing company that the state department does so we're getting daily updates on the political situation in these different areas sometimes there's a local election happening and so we won't send our team in that week we'll wait till all of that's settled for example Um, i remember one of our operations staff telling me that uh, he had a volunteer from Germany who he wouldn't send to Haiti a few years back because that same response team member had also gone to Iraq for us and the hospitals in Haiti weren't up to the standard we would expect. So they knew if something happened to our team, they would be airlifted to Miami and he didn't want there to be an issue with the passport stamp from Iraq and getting that gentleman into Miami. And so it's like thinking 10 steps ahead like that all the time to make sure that all of those different opportunities and options are considered and then trying to figure out the best way to kind of navigate the situation.
0: Hi, uh, with respect to the political situations you find on the ground, do you have a team or uh, people that you use to negotiate entry into uh, places?
1: Yep, that's a great question. So a lot of times the Rotarians are helping us with that, um, helping us to know people at customs or to make sure that the aid is coming in without uh, crazy tariffs put on the items but also we have a team that yes does work in between disasters to work with local governments and other agencies we're also a member of what's called um, the sphere community that the UN establishes so after a disaster there's all these different clusters there's a medical cluster a shelter cluster a water cluster and so we're one of three organizations that has trained staff that can actually lead the shelter cluster and so you're helping coordinate all of those different efforts on the ground and so um, that's another way that we're able to do it.
0: So uh, you, you mentioned that uh, you coordinate with the uh, Red Cross, uh, UN uh, in government, this sort of mm-hmm. thing. It it occurs to me that in these chaotic situations that mm-hmm. coordination is not trivial. How, how do you do that? How do you actually manage logistics of uh, not making sure you're duplicating efforts and not missing places.
1: Yeah, that's where that cluster system comes into play because there have been a lot of bad examples in the past of people not coordinating these humanitarian massive efforts and so, uh, we organize these groups and sometimes they're meeting under a tree at a certain time, but it's all of those aid workers that are in the community and all of the different organizations and they're literally having daily meetings to find out what did your team find during their needs assessment? We're already covering this area. Can you get your stock in faster so that we do have that coordination on the ground?
0: Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, of the cost of the shelter box, which costs $1,000, what is the cost of the box and its contents? And the second part of the question is, as a 501 c 3 what percentage of each dollar you receive actually goes towards aid relief in the shelter box versus administration and overhead?
1: Sure, those are great questions, thank you. Uh, so uh, the cost of the items within the shelter box, they're- about $750 that it equals, and then the other 250 is for delivery and storage of the box. But we get all of our items incredibly cheap or at cost. So those solar lights, It's a company in the U.S. that makes them, and they give them to us at the cost that they produce them. Uh, We also, for the tent, have been told it would retail for $1,500, but they sell them to us for $500. The company is basically the Coleman in Europe, and they use it as their R&D project, so they're able to take their research and development budget and to apply it to the design of our tent, and so that helps keep the cost low, so we go out of our way to make sure not only that we have high-quality items, but also that we're procuring them at a low cost and then um, we have 84 cents of the dollar that go back into our programs and services. So we have a four star rating from Charity Navigator, uh, Platinum Status from GuideStar, and some of those other watchdog organizations. Mm -hmm. Yes. The question was what do we do about shipping and logistics? Yep. Like, do you partner with airlines or how do you get the stuff moved all around the globe like you do? Yeah, that's a great question. It really um, looks different depending on the disaster. A few years ago, the Dutch Navy had our boxes on their ships and headed over to Haiti after there was a hurricane there. Uh, We're partners with DHL, and so they'll donate the cost of their shipping. Um, We've had Richard Branson and his team donate Virgin flights in the past, so uh, we have some different transportation partners, but then we'll also have government intervention as well at different times. It just kind of depends on that particular situation.
0: Uh, Well, I noticed one of your recipient countries was Somalia. And I remember some years ago how they refused uh, Western help with medical supplies. Have your organization been refused entry in any countries?
1: that's a great question so if we've been refused the entry we won't go in unless we're invited so because our headquarters is in the uk a country has to request international aid for us to be able to go into that country and so we make sure that that piece is in place before we deploy our team and that's one of the criteria that we look at So while we often respond to developing nations, we have responded in the United States six different times. But again, it's been when we've been contacted by FEMA and the US resources are overwhelmed. So during Hurricane Katrina, for example, Superstorm Sandy during Hurricane Harvey, they're contacting us to ask for additional assistance. And so um, that's a piece that does have to be in place. We have to be invited in by the country. (laughs) <laughs> no, don't do
0: it. <clears throat> All right. So, Sarah, you did a wonderful job. Um, how to? How do we get involved in making a donation like now?
1: Thank you, (laughs) thanks Judith. Uh, So uh, clubs can participate in different ways. Uh, We have what we call our hero program and those clubs give either 1,000, 3,000 or 5,000 a year and it helps us with that pre-positioned aid. The last thing we want is for a disaster to hit and then we start ordering the items. The tents take about six months to produce and so we try to make sure we have a lot of inventory stockpiled around the world at any given time. And so those donations support that program. Um, we have clubs that do events for us. We have a dinner called Shine for Shelter Box where it's a candlelight dinner where people use the solar lights and invite people in and talk to them about Shelter Box mm-hmm. and do an event that way. So there's a ton of different ways. We have a lot of youth exchange support, Rotaract support. Um, sometimes we have a group in Alaska of youth exchange students that sleep out in the tent in the winter once a year mm-hmm. and collect donations and raise $5,000. Yeah. So if anyone wants to participate, let me know.
0: Well, we're gonna do that. Chris and I got one for you.
1: Great. Mm -hmm. Hi. Hi. Um, Were you invited by the United States to assist Puerto Rico? We were not. Nope. Uh, We responded in seven different Caribbean nations at that time, but there was no invitation for us to respond in Puerto Rico. They had it covered. Thank
0: you, Jackie. Thank you very much, Sarah. Appreciate all the information you shared with us. You can see how enthusiastic our group is about this particular subject. I'd like to present you with our Share What You Can Award, which means we are going to donate to the local USO in your name. In the words of a woman I most admire, Amelia Earhart, no kind action ever stops with itself. One kind action leads to another. Let's leave today building connections, taking kind action, serving one another, and rejoicing in the fellowship of Rotary. Meeting adjourned. We hope you enjoyed the latest podcast from the Las Vegas Rotary Club. For more information about future meetings, membership, and our local service projects, please visit lasvegasrotary.com. Now please go out, take action, and connect the world.